0: All right. uh, right, we're going to continue on through our study of the Second London Confession of Faith. So, if you didn't get a handout, if you would put a hand up, we will make sure you get a handout. All right, there's one person over here. Any others? Just leave your hand up for a second until they get to you. Anyone else? Right over here, brother. One on this side. <clears throat> All right. So this afternoon, we are going to look at chapters 14 and 15 of the Confession of Faith. I actually wanted to do 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, but decided to spare you. Uh, I really thought maybe I could just almost just read them all, but kind of got bogged down here. So uh, anyway, 14 and 15 this afternoon, I think. <clears throat> These are the... uh Doctrines of God's Gracious Gifts of Faith and Repentance. These are uh, sweet chapters. What they say is edifying, I think, encouraging, because they are just really a summary of what the Scriptures say. Um, I've mentioned a number of times that this is not uh, a confession of faith, that you you have to subscribe to every T and cross every... T and dot every I, the way the confession does. But in terms of a teaching tool, I think it's very, very helpful. Um, I uh, agree uh, with this uh, confession. It's been so uh, encouraging. I believe it's scriptural. um, And so hopefully it'll be a good help to you. So Second London Confession of Faith, Chapter 14, Saving Faith. This is a huge doctrine because we believe that we are justified on the basis of faith alone, right? We are justified by faith alone. So what is saving faith? So here we begin with chapter 14, paragraph 1. The grace of faith by which the elect are enabled to believe so that their souls are saved is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. So the very first thing that we're confronted with is that faith is a gracious gift of God. We looked at that a little bit last week. So I won't go back over those texts. The paragraph continues, faith is ordinarily produced by the ministry of the word, except for those unusual cases we talked about last week or the week before where people have this kind of uh physical or or mental incapacity, There is the the ministry of the Word is essential to the production of faith. By this same ministry and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed by God, faith is increased and strengthened. So by this you can see the word means there, M-E-A-N-S. It's a reference to the means of grace. The means by which the grace of faith comes to us are the means that God has appointed, namely through His Word. Faith comes through hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ um, and through the other means that God has ordained. Uh, And this is encouraging because it reminds us that we can actually strengthen our faith. And we should, right? We should give ourselves to these means of grace that we might have God's grace strengthened in us, have our faith strengthened. Conversely, your faith or your belief can diminish by the neglect of these means. It is not, it should not be a surprising thing that someone who has neglected all of the means of grace has come to a point where they're starting to doubt some of the basic doctrines of the Bible, some of their commitment to Christ. The means of grace are that by which, are those things by which God strengthens the, the grace of faith in us. Paragraph 2 says, By this faith, Christians believe to be true everything revealed in the Word, recognizing it, the Word, as the authority of God Himself. They also perceive that the Word is more excellent than every other writing and everything else in the world because it displays the glory of God in his attributes, the excellence of Christ in his nature and offices, and the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit in his activities and operations. So they are enabled to, trust, to entrust their souls to the truth believed. They respond differently according to the content of each particular passage, obeying the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and the one to come. So what is it that characterizes saving faith, this gracious gift of God? In the first place, it is that people who have faith believe the Bible. Right, they believe the Word of God, they believe everything in the Word of God. now that mean, that doesn't mean that they might not be ignorant of some things in the Word. I believe that that can certainly be the case in the in the life of a person who has saving true saving faith. He may not be as educated in the Word as he should be. he may have some ignorance, in fact, he may have some misunderstandings of the Word and still truly be the Lord's child. But he nevertheless is not in opposition to the word. He does not refuse to receive and believe the word. Jesus said, my sheep hear my what? They hear my voice. And where is the voice of Jesus found? Just in the red letters in the Bible? (laughs) No, it's in all of the word. So as they hear that word, they recognize in the scripture the voice of the Savior. They know His voice and they follow Him. Jesus said, this is the way it will be. Now, this acceptance of the Word of God is not merely intellectual belief. It goes on to say that they are enabled to entrust their souls to the truth believed. Theologians have long described saving faith in three ways, using three sort of Latin terms. The first is noticia. Noticia is the idea of knowing something or understanding something. Saving faith has an intellectual component. There are certain things that must be believed about Christ, about sin, about God, about salvation. There are some basic truths that must be understood must be um, uh, known. A sinner must know Jesus is Lord, right? That's the most basic confession of faith, isn't it? Jesus is Lord. A sinner must know that Christ died to save. Sinner must know those things. But it's not just knowledge. In addition, um, saving faith has been described by the Latin term ascensus, which means, as it might sound, to give assent to something, to... To agree with something, to affirm with what you know, what you hear, what you understand. There is an affirmation of the soul that's a part of saving faith. And the third element is fiducia. Fiducia, and you probably recognize that, um, that, uh, that root. Uh, it means, it means trust. It means that you're not just assenting to something. But you're relying on it, you're embracing it. And there is that element of faith as well. So faith, saving faith, incorporates all of this. And the confession uh, pulls these things together, saying that not only do we know things, but he, he entrusts his soul to what he knows. He he relies on it, he gives himself to it. And then the last part of the paragraph says this. But the principal acts of saving faith. Focus directly on Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting. You see the different parts of faith there. Resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Jesus Christ, our Savior, friends, is the center of the entire Word of God. The entire message that God has communicated to us is focused on His beloved Son. And so saving faith has as its focus not merely the entire scope of the Word of God or the the entire breadth of the Word of God, but the scope or the focus of the Word, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the heart of saving faith, an understanding of certain things about Christ and a reliance upon Christ and an ascent and an, and an embrace of Christ. Third paragraph says, this faith may exist in varying degrees, so that it may be either weak or strong. Yet even in the weakest, even in its weakest form, it is different in kind or nature, like all other saving graces, from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. Therefore, faith may often be attacked and weakened, but true saving faith, it gains the victory. It matures in many to the point that they attain full assurance through Christ, who is both the founder and perfecter of our faith. All right, so this passage uh, is... Recognizing the fact that, like we all know, there are different degrees of understanding of God's Word, uh, different degrees of reliance on the Word at any moment, even in our lives. There are moments in our lives when our faith is strong, and there are other moments in our testing, in our temptations, our weakness, where our faith proves not so strong. And the, the blessing of this is the fact that salvation doesn't rest ultimately on the strength of our faith, but on the one who is the object of our faith, right? It rests, our hope, our assurance rests in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's the one who saves. It's not our faith that saves us, but it's our, our Lord who saves us uh, and God justifies us by by means of faith. Even in its weakest form, the confession says, saving faith is, is different in kind or nature, like all of the other saving graces, from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. That's the phrase I wanted to park on for a moment, because maybe that would be a phrase that would seem new to you, or even... Even wrong in some ways. What is a temporary believer? Um, the writers of the Reformed confessions were willing to acknowledge as faith um, a, a kind of a kind of faith of of a different kind of a different nature from true faith. That is saving faith. And that other kind of faith is here described as temporary faith. They were willing to acknowledge this because they believed that the Bible was willing to acknowledge something as a kind of faith that wasn't true, God-given, saving faith. It might be a part of common grace that they know and even assent to certain things um, that God has revealed. Uh, but it's it's different in kind or nature from saving faith. Here's what uh, they thought about when they were writing these kinds of statements. Okay, consider this. You probably run across these passages and maybe just haven't connected with, with this idea of um, of a different kind of faith. But we find this interesting record in a number of places in John's gospel. One of them is John two verse twenty three. The scripture says there that when he Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many did what? Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But then the very next verse is this, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what is in man. And I think as John's gospel unfolds, it becomes clear that what's happening is these people have a kind of attachment to Christ, a kind of even belief or faith in a sense, that is not true saving faith. It's not that kind or that nature of belief. Here's a couple of passages where John sort of rounds this out. In chapter 6, verse 66, Jesus, after teaching the people some pretty hard truths, it says, John says that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, notice, John calls them disciples in a sense. Earlier, he called them people who believe, and yet now, they're turning their back on Christ, and Jesus deals with his own immediate followers, the twelve, in chapter eight. Along this same line, Jesus said, um, oh, "Excuse me." He's talking again to the to the Jews. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself. And in John eight thirty one, Jesus says um, to the Jews who had believed in him, "If you abide in my word." then you are truly my disciples. So in other words, there were some who seemed to be his disciples. Um, They believed in a sense certain things that he was saying. They saw signs. They believed he was from God. And John's willing to acknowledge that it's a kind of belief, but it's not truly being his disciple. It's not true faith, right? Um, In other words, there is a kind of intellectual assent or sometimes a kind of emotional response toward Christ and the gospel that is not true saving faith. The Bible calls it faith of a kind or belief or being a disciple, but it is faith of a different kind. And James 2 talks about this different kind of faith, this kind of faith, James says, that doesn't save anyone. Did you know there's a kind of faith that doesn't save anybody? James 2, verse 14. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Somebody might say, well, wait a minute. James is writing that the person says he has faith. And that's true. I think he's, he's emphasizing that because it's not real faith. But at the same time, he says, it is faith. He calls it faith. Can faith save him? Can that faith save him? Sometimes uh, you might even say, can that kind of faith save him? Can a faith of that nature actually save? That's not saving faith. It is an attachment in a sense, but it's not real saving faith. He makes a verbal confession. He says, I have faith. He confesses the faith. But that faith, that kind of faith, is not saving faith. And the same, the writers say that the same is true of all of the other saving graces. We'll see this in a little while uh, when we get to the chapter on good works. There is a kind of good work that is not part of the, the, the grace of salvation. It doesn't, in other words, spring from real faith and commitment and union with Jesus Christ. It's not the work of Christ in that person. It's just kind of an external conformity. And it is, you would say, in some sense, it's a good work, but it's not a part of saving good works. Not that good works saves us, but it's a part of that saving package. the the grace of God that he works in the life of a person. So the writers of the confession are saying, this is true about all of these these human sort of responses to the gospel. There there is a kind of of a surface um, uh, example of it or, or, or instance of it, but what we're talking about is something deeper. And it has certain characteristics that distinguish it as faith of a different kind. That is real, true, saving faith. So, what is characteristic then of real faith, saving faith? Well, I would give you four things. This is not really from the confession, but, well, it is from the confession, but uh, it's going to be unfolded over the course of four chapters. I would say in the first place that real saving faith is faith that looks to Christ, right? Not to self. That's the heart of faith. Faith is looking away from yourself. Faith doesn't look at faith. Faith is not looking at yourself in a mirror, saying, Do I have enough faith? Faith is looking away outside of yourself to the Lord Christ, saying, Save me, O Savior. So faith is looking to Christ. This is why, I think this is why Peter, a great apostle of the faith, can say this. Listen to this. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he is writing, he says, To those who have obtained a faith, listen to this, a faith of equal standing to ours. A, a, a faith that's equal to the faith of the apostles. Why can he say that these people he's writing to have that same faith? He says because it's by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a faith that looks to the righteousness of Christ. That, that is the faith. It's, it's just as powerful of faith as the faith of the apostles because it doesn't rest in their own understanding or in their own strength of their commitment, but in this Christ who saves. So in the first place, true saving faith looks to Christ, not to self. Secondly, faith is repentant, especially with regard to thinking about sin. Faith is repentant. And this is going to be unfolded in the next chapter of the Confession on repentance, chapter 15. Thirdly, saving faith, listen, results in works of love that flow from faith union with Christ. Faith, true saving faith, results in good works that flow from that faith union with Christ. And that is going to be the chapter after that, chapter 16. And then guess what? Chapter 17 gives you the fourth characteristic of saving faith, which is this that saving faith perseveres. It abides in Christ through all of the trials, the temptations of life. And this is in direct contradiction to the way they're calling non saving faith here temporary faith. True faith perseveres all the way to the end, it it continues. Hold on to Christ in spite of trials, in spite of temptations, in spite of falls, it gets back up and runs to Christ. This is saving faith. And of course, that's chapter 18. I'm chapter 17. So you got 15, 16, 17. And then I'll throw in one more. This is not a description of it, but I think um, uh, the, the, the confession says this here, that saving faith um matures. In many Christians, it matures to the point where they attain a full assurance that they are the Lord's. Right? Saving faith in many grows to the point that they attain full assurance. And assurance, guess what? That's the next chapter after that, chapter 18. So all of these chapters are going to build. This is why I tried to, you know, originally put them all five together. Uh, but they're each going to build on the other. Faith, repentance, good works, perseverance, assurance, all of this comes together as a package of, uh, that comes to us in Christ, through Christ, because of Christ, by the grace of God. Now, you may have a question about the assurance of faith part. It matures to the point that they attain full assurance. Does that mean not all Christians have assurance? Well, we'll come back to that, So just so you can save your questions. Uh, but we'll come to chapter 15 now. Chapter 15 is repentance to life and salvation. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, John. I think what they have in mind are applications of these basic um, means of grace the Word and prayer. And there are various ways that we can get the Word into us. So, reading the Scripture personally, hearing the Scripture read, um, listening to preaching from the Scripture, I think that's probably what they have in mind. Even, I would extend it probably even to saying if if there's a hymn that's filled with Scripture that teaches our, our minds and strengthens our hearts in that way, that that's a part, in an extended way, of this sort of, Basic, these basic means of grace. I think that's probably what they are getting at. Yeah. Good. Anybody else have a question so far? That's fine. Good. All right. Uh, chapter 15, then. <clears throat> chapter 15 is uh, repentance to life and salvation. Paragraph one. Some of the elect are converted after their early years, having lived in the natural state that is apart from the Spirit, unregenerate. They, Having lived that way for a time and served various evil desires and pleasures, God gives these repentance to life as part of their effectual calling. Second paragraph. There is no one who does good and does not sin. Even the best may fall into great sins and offenses, though the power, through the power and deceitfulness of the corruption in them, along with the strength of temptation. Therefore, God has mercifully provided in the covenant of grace that believers who sin and fall will be renewed through repentance to salvation. I think so these two paragraphs taken together um, bring into mind different aspects of repentance. In the first case, paragraph one deals with a very a particular case of repentance or a special case. And you see right there that they're talking in particular about people who are converted later in life. People who are converted after their early years—I'll leave it up to you to decide when that when you become you know not young anymore—but uh, people who are older and are experienced conversion are by their effectual calling given the grace of repentance to life as part of that effectual call. The prime example that comes to my mind all the time is Saul of Tarsus, right? Who who literally fought against the Lord Jesus Christ in his early years as an unbeliever and then is confronted with Christ and his, in his glory and his heart is transformed by God's grace. And so what does Saul do? He repudiates his old life. There's a dramatic change. It's night and day. It's It's a great turning point in his life. On the other hand, you have other conversions that... Um, uh, the work of regeneration that happens in the life of somebody that apparently looks different, like Timothy, who from a a child knew the Holy Scriptures, which were able to make him wise unto salvation. I was thinking about my grandfather, uh, who came to Christ as an adult man, and in his younger years growing up, he sowed much to the flesh and uh ended up as uh uh really given over to alcohol. That ruled his life. He was a drunk. And uh he was drunk a lot of his of his youth, uh as a young man. Uh up to the point where he got married, uh married a a bride from Germany, a World War Two bride, brought her home. And uh my mom remembers early days of him coming home completely drunk after payday. Uh, their money spent and him angry and throwing things around the house and yelling and her hiding behind the couch. I mean, that was his life. And uh, my mom, by the mercies of God, was converted uh, through the witness of a friend, invited to church. And uh, she gave her life to Christ and wanted to be baptized and uh, invited her parents to come and see her be baptized. and. My grandfather went to that service and heard the gospel, as far as I know, for the first time, at least clearly. And uh, really, he he heard it for the first time anyway. And uh, the Lord in his mercy just brought it home and transformed him. And uh, there was a great sense of immediate change about certain things in his life. And the biggest thing was his drunkenness. He literally went home and took his alcohol out and just poured it all out, every bit of it, and never drank again, as far as I know. Um, this this is the kind of sort of shift in in lifestyle that that is obvious and clear in the life of someone who comes to Christ um, at, at in later in life. And a lot of times, you might almost think of repentance as being almost primary in, in their coming to Christ. They're, they've been holding on to their sin and finally they let go of their sin and they run to Christ. Um, they're both the graces of God. Really flip sides of the same coin. Faith and repentance. But some people, you you see that repentance so much so dramatically. This is a, a special case of repentance that the confession refers to in paragraph 1. In paragraph 2, they're talking about ordinary repentance notice it says even the best of believers are sinners even the best of believers sin and fall and uh you know thinking about that same grandfather it is interesting that both of these aspects of repentance played out in his life as he grew older while I, as far as i know he never went he never struggled with drunkenness ever again uh the one thing that he had to continually repent of all his life was A kind of sinful um, moodiness and depression and self absorption that would, you know, he would just struggle with a good bit of his life. Um, And I think that's the way it is for a lot of us. In our Christian lives, there's just that ordinary, ongoing repentance um, as we fall into sin. Uh, we we continue to repent of our of our wrongs that deserve the wrath of God, and uh, run to Christ and hold on to Him. Paragraph three really gets to the definition of repentance. Uh, paragraph three: this saving repentance is a gospel grace. So stop there for a second. In other words, this repentance is a gift. Of God. Grace means gift, right? It's a gift of God's saving grace. Excuse me. Um, and the scripture teaches us, teach us this. Just like it taught that faith, which is sort of the flip side of repentance in a lot of ways, just like it teaches us that faith is the gift from God, so it teaches us that repentance is the work of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul told Timothy, that God's the Lord's servant doesn't need to strive with people, to quarrel with people. He says, God perhaps may grant them. He says, you're, you're, you're patiently enduring the evil that they bring. You're teaching them the word of God. And God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. This is a gift from God. And, of course, that's exactly what happened in the book of Acts. God gave repentance. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. After hearing uh, Peter report about the work of God in the life of Cornelius uh, when he's giving testimony to the church, it says that they glorified God, saying, Then the Gentiles also... To, excuse me, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So it's clear from the Bible. Repentance is a grace from God, an undeserved gift, a kindness that He bestows. Now it goes on to say, paragraph 3 there, that this repentance is a gospel grace in which those who are made aware by the Holy Spirit of the many, evils of their sin by faith in Christ humble themselves for it with godly sorrow hatred of it and self-loathing they pray for pardon and strength of grace and determine and endeavor by provisions from the Spirit to live before God in a well pleasing way in everything there's a pretty good definition of Saving repentance. The confession then emphasizes a couple things, several things. One, that, that repentance has an intellectual aspect. right? You see it says that they are made aware by the Holy Spirit of the many evils of their sin. There are, of course, some sins, some people who are ignorant of their sin in, in large measure. There is no one who is completely ignorant. There is the testimony of God within them, but there are people who are ignorant in some measure of their sinfulness. Um, there are those things that are secret sins that the psalmist confessed and prayed that God would keep him back from sinning deliberately, openly, and and with a, a rebellious spirit. Um, and and the. Part of repentance is coming to see clearly that we are sinners. Secondly, there is a volitional aspect to repentance. It says in the confession that by faith in Christ they humble themselves. There's not just that I know that certain things are sinful. I'm humbled about them. I I yield to that. I I acknowledge that. I, I let God be God and say what's right and wrong. And then there is an emotional aspect. And that is um, expressed by the words that they have come to a place of godly sorrow, hatred of their sins, self-loathing. I don't imagine that there are any Christians, real Christians, who don't know something of that. Emotional heartbreak over their own sinfulness. This is part of... What is characteristic of of, of repentance? It doesn't mean I don't think that every person is is as outwardly emotional as the next guy and that we can sort of judge based on how much he cries as to whether he's really saved. Um, But there is nevertheless a a wholehearted response uh, with all our being that characterizes repentance. And repentance the confession says, looks to Christ. It looks to Christ, right? Ultimately, It doesn't look to itself any more than faith looks to itself. We don't look to our own tears to save us. Could my tears forever flow? These for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone, right? So it looks to Christ. And it says that repentance looks to Christ for two things. For pardon and for the strength of grace to live before God in a well-pleasing way. So real repentance looks to Christ to be sufficient payment for all of His sins. It looks to the objective sacrifice of Christ and rests in that, rejoices in that. But it also looks to Christ for the, the grace and the strength not to keep on sinning. That's part of repentance. It doesn't just say, Christ has paid it all, hallelujah, now I'll live any way I want. Repentance goes on and... And in persevering way, looks to Christ for the strength of grace to live in a way that pleases God. Last two paragraphs. And we'll be done. Paragraph four. Repentance must continue throughout our lives. Because the body, because of the body of death and its activities. So it is everyone's duty to repent to each specific known sin specifically. This idea of of there being a continuing in repentance will will come up again in the idea of the perseverance of the saints. And then paragraph 5, God has made full provision through Christ in the covenant of grace to preserve believers in their salvation. Thus, although there is no sin so small that it is undeserving of damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it will bring damnation on those who repent. This makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. We constantly, I constantly preach repentance, number one, because that's in the Bible. Number two, because we need it, right? Because it's it's part of the ongoing life of our faith to continually be repentant of sin, looking to Christ, seeking for His grace in pardon and the experience of His own holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Um, and I think what what's going on here in paragraphs four and five is you have a little bit of a of a balance of the emphasis of where where repentance comes from or or who has the responsibility for repentance. In paragraph four, the the heaviness is placed on our own personal responsibility. As the confession says, it is everyone's duty to repent. It's our duty. And in paragraph five. It deals with the repentance as the gift of God, the the divine sovereignty side of the coin, if you will, um, that God has made provision to preserve believers through repentance unto salvation. So, is repentance something that we're responsible to do or something that God does? And the answer is what? The answer is yes. Good job. The answer is yes. Um, That's right. It is it is in in a in an ultimate sense it is you know it has to be the work of god's grace there is nothing good in me but i am actively accountably responsible to persevere to not let my heart grow cold towards sin and that's the real danger isn't it to just get to the point where our hearts are cold and so we prove to be unbelievers. Repentance uh, I tell you before I before I close, are there any other anybody else want to make a, a comment or, or have a have a question on, on this so far? We're probably pretty familiar with both faith and repentance, but so repentance is then an ongoing manifestation an ongoing manifestation of our union with Christ in the covenant of grace. And Christ is sufficient. So that, and I love the way the confession ends this way, so that even while the smallest sin is enough to damn us, no sin is so great that it will bring damnation upon those who have saving faith, saving repentance, who continue to look to Christ and hope in Him. Christ and His grace is that sufficient that we need not fear the wrath of God in any ultimate sense because Christ has done it all. Amen? Hallelujah, what a Savior.